Good morning, everybody. It's good to see you this morning. Today is a, a special day, an exciting day at First Baptist Church. It is the last message on giving uh, for a while. And uh, I'm excited about that, ready to move on to a new issue, uh, a new chapter in 2 Corinthians. But I'll tell you this, we're going to finish on a high note. We're going to finish on a great note. Uh, Paul wraps up this two-chapter discussion with doxology and praise and worship to the king uh, about his indescribable gift. It is a great place to end, uh, and, I, and I can't wait to get there with you. It's going to be good. Uh, last week, we saw an important part of Paul's talk to the church at Corinth and to us about giving and collection and how to be a good steward of what God has given to us. He has talked to the church at Corinth a lot about uh, why to give. He's talked to them even about what to give as he talked about giving a proportionate gift and a, and a reciprocal gift and all of those kind of things. Uh, but really, he's been driving the whole time at how to give. Uh, talked about this being an issue of the heart more than of the wallet. It's an issue of the gospel more than it is an issue of money. And so last week he told us a little bit about what the heart of a giver looks like and, uh, and what, sh- what our attitude should be as we give. And I just think it's a really important part of his discussion about giving. We talked last week about how God gives us seed how he provides for us what we need, how he gives to us everything that we need. And when he gives us what we need, we need to plant it. When he gives us seed, we need to sow it. He doesn't just give us these things, no matter what they are, if they're money or if they're time or if they're talent or if they're passion. He doesn't just give us these things so that we can have them or enjoy them or worse yet, kind of tuck them away and hide them and bury them in the ground. He gives us these things so that we can plant them for his sake and for his kingdom. And so I told you, whatever he's given to you, plant it, put it in the ground, use it for his kingdom. And I told you that when you sow or when you plant it, you should plant it with great joy. You should plant it with cheerfulness was the word uh, that that my text translated it as. But I told you that it comes from this word in the Greek uh, where we get our word hilarious from. That when we plant these seeds that God has given us for his kingdom's sake, we plant them with a big smile on our face. We plant them with a little bit of a laugh and and with great joy, just like that old farmer I was talking about. And I didn't didn't mean last week, somebody was giving me a hard time saying that I called you an old farmer. That was not, I wasn't wasn't trying to to say that about you. I was thinking of of an old farmer who's done it a zillion times, and when he goes to plant his fields, he's smile, all smiles, and he just can't wait to get that seed in the ground because he knows that that seed that goes in the ground is coming back up and is going to produce and it's going to grow and it's going to be a beautiful thing. And so I told you that when you plant, you plant uh, with that kind of joy. And when those plates pass by, you smile and you laugh. And when you get uh, called for nursery duty, you smile and you laugh because that is a seed that God has given you to plant with joy. So when God gives you seed, sow it. When you sow it, sow it with a smile. And when you sow it with a smile, have an eye on the harvest. Don't think that this is all there is to it. Don't think that when you serve God in any capacity, whether it's in the nursery or in giving or in preaching or whatever it is, don't think that that's the end. Those things are just the initial investment that are going to later on produce a harvest. And the kind of harvest we're looking for is not a material harvest. We're not looking to do these things so that we will get rich or so that somehow that stuff will come back to us even greater, but we want different stuff to come back. And we don't want it to come back to us. We want it to come back to him, right? We want to plant our seeds, uh, sow. We want to sow our seeds, but we want to reap a spiritual harvest of unity and love and peace and growth in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we're looking for, right? 
And so we talked last week about, about how we should give and what our, what our minds and our hearts should look like, look like as we give. This week, we're going to wrap up this whole discussion about giving um, with, a, with a note of doxology. One, one commentator said, for Paul, for Paul especially, theology always leads to doxology. In other words, right thinking always leads to worship for him. And you see this. If you read Paul's writings in the New Testament, you will see that oftentimes he will be in the height of some theological explanation about the details of who Christ is and what he has done, or maybe specifically about the atoning work of Christ and his death on the cross on our behalf. And he'll get into explaining this, and then he just busts out into song. Right? He just breaks into a song singing about the glories of our King who died for us. And that's the way it should work for us as well, right? This is not just Paul who, who, for whom right thinking should lead to praise. That's for us as well. That's what we want to see here all the time, especially when we gather together for worship. We want, to, we want to be concerned about right thinking, right? We want to get it right when it comes to the scriptures, and we want to understand theology properly. But it should move us to song. It should move us to this, this overflow of excitement and praise to the Father. Amen? Even about giving. This is what I want you to see today. Even about giving. It's easy to do that when we're talking about the cross. It's easy to do that when we're looking forward to Easter and the resurrection and the empty tomb. It's easy to talk about those theological things and break forth in song. But what I want you to see here is that Paul's talking about giving. He's talking about sharing your money with people who are in need. And at the end of it, he bursts into song. In fact, he makes up a word. This is fantastic. Songwriters can do this, right? He, he makes up a word. Because he can't think of a word to describe how great this gift is, so he makes up a word. He's the only one that ever uses it. It's unbelievable. It's fantastic. Love it, right? So we're going to see clearly again this week that this issue is a gospel issue. It's not a money issue. It's a gospel issue. And what Paul wants is not something from the church at Corinth. He wants something for the church at Corinth. And what we want here at First Baptist Church is not something from you. We want something for you. We want the grace of God to take such radical root in your life that you live for him in every area. So look at it today as we wrap up. 2 Corinthians, do you have your Bible? Did I say that yet? Do you have your Bible? 2 Corinthians chapter 9 is where you need to go. Verses 11 to 15 is what we'll look at today. Which means chapter 10 is next week. Hallelujah. I'm actually going to start reading in verse 10. Interesting note, verses 10 to 14, through 14 actually, in Greek are one sentence. One long, complex sentence. It says, Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in everything for all liberality, which through us is producing thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not, fully, not only fully supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing with many thanksgivings to God. Because of the proof given by this ministry, they will glorify God for your obedience to your confession of the gospel of Christ and for the liberality of your contribution to them and to all while they also, by prayer on your behalf, yearn for you because of the surpassing grace of God in you. And listen to verse 15. Thanks be to God for His indescribable gift. Let's pray. God, thanks be to you for your indescribable gift. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the cross. 
Thank you for the empty tomb. Thank you for grace. Thank you for mercy. Thank you for salvation, forgiveness of sins, and life that is eternal. Thank you for your great work and your great gift. Help us to live our lives in response to that great gift. Help us to give in response to that great gift. Help us to serve in response to that great gift. Help us to love in response to that great gift. And God, as, as we think about that, we know there are people in here today who cannot do any of that because they don't know that great gift. They've not received that great gift. So our prayer today for them is that you'll give it to them. That you will show them mercy and grace. That you will open their eyes and their hearts to see your love and your provision for them. And that their response will be the only proper response to repent of sins and believe in Jesus Christ. And God, we want to see this not just for their sakes, but for your glory, for the sake of your kingdom, for your name. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, so there are a couple of neat things going on uh, in the text today. First couple of verses are very similar to where we left off last week, talking about how God provides uh, as we serve, as we give. He provides so that we can give. He doesn't give us those things so that we'll just be satisfied and comfortable. He gives us those things so that we will be stewards. And then you're going to see this bigger picture. Paul's going to kind of zoom out a little bit. He's going to say, you know what? It's not about just meeting the needs of the saints in Jerusalem. You know what? It's not even just about your obedience. It's ultimately about the glory of God. This whole thing is meant to bring glory to God. And then he's going to end it with that song of praise to the Lord. And it's beautiful thing. So look at verse 11. Verse 11 is similar to what we saw in verse 10. I will warn you here like I warned you there that we need to be very careful not to turn this verse into some kind of materialistic, self-centered, fleshly promise that it was never intended to be. Look what he says. He says, you will be enriched in everything for all liberality, which through us is producing thanksgiving to God. Notice here, maybe most important, he says, you will be enriched in everything for all liberality. He doesn't say, you will just be enriched in everything for your comfort, or for your satisfaction, or for your good pleasure, or for your flesh. He says, you'll be enriched in everything for liberality, for generosity, for giving, for sacrifice, and for service. That's the point of what he's getting at. And I told you last week that we, when we think about this, we need to think of it not just in terms of money, but maybe we think of it even better in terms of other things. That when we are preaching or when we are witnessing, he will provide us words, right? And when we are serving, He will provide us strength and energy. And when we are counseling or when we are in the nursery, He will provide us patience, right? And He will provide us kindness. He will give us what we need as we serve Him. And it seems like what, he, what Paul is saying here is that's also true when it comes to money. That when we are generous and when we are providing and when we are giving, He will give us what we need to give. That He will provide us what we need to provide for others. And that's exactly what we're seeing playing out in Corinth. He's doing that so that they can care for other people. So we are enriched for liberality. Look what he says next. This is huge. The next part of this sentence is absolutely huge. He says, 
You will be enriched in everything for all liberality, which through us is producing thanksgiving to God. This is maybe the most important part of what we will talk about today. This is fundamental. All of this giving that Paul has been urging in the Corinthians is about more than just providing the needs of the poor saints in Jerusalem. It's about more than just bringing the two groups together. It's about more than just making unity. It's about thanksgiving that flows to God, right? He says all of this, God is enriching you for the sake of liberality, and all of this is producing in us, in us all, not just in Paul and his companions, but in the Corinthians and in the saints in Jerusalem. It's producing in us all Thanksgiving, thanksgiving to God. And, and I want to say that I see that at First Baptist Church, and, and I want us all to see that at First Baptist Church. I thank God, and I'm nervous about this, I thank God for the good work that has been happening here for the first part of this year, especially in the area of giving, especially as we've been talking about giving. I gave you guys last week a big attaboy, right? And I want to echo that again this week. I want to give you a big attaboy because we've been giving like crazy as we've been talking about giving. And, and we thank God for that, right? Even this past week, you gave over $15,000. Over $15,000 in one week uh, for the sake of the kingdom. And I say to you, attaboy, way to go. Keep it up. Ten more months to go. <laughs> Ten more months to go. And we don't want to be embarrassed at the end of the year and all of that stuff. And I want this to be... Like Paul wants for the Corinthians, not a bubble, not a burst, not some kind of just spike in the giving where they are compelled because he's on them all the time about it. He says, I want this to take root in your heart. I want this grace to happen for you so that this will be a lifestyle for you. And I'm trusting that it's going to be. And so I want to say to you guys a big attaboy. And I want you to hear that with honesty and sincerity from me. Attaboy. Way to go. But maybe more than that, in light of the text this week, I want to say a big praise the Lord. Praise the Lord is maybe more important than add a boy today, right? Because he's the one that's doing this in us. He's the one that's doing this through us. And it's all for his sake, right? And so as much as we say add a boy, we should twice as much say praise the Lord for the work that he has done. So verse 12 is very similar to verse 11. Kind of reiterates the same point. Basically a restatement of the principle we saw in verse 10, and then in verse 11, and verse 12. So to say it three times must mean it's important. Look what he says in verse 12. For the ministry of this service is not only fully supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing through many thanksgivings to God. He says it's not only, he makes it clear, it's not only providing for the needs of the saints, fully providing for the needs of the saints in Jerusalem. That's not only what is being accomplished here, but also it is overflowing with thanksgiving to God. Now my question is, who is giving thanks to God? Who is, in this story, in this talk about the Corinthians and the Macedonians and Paul and the saints in Jerusalem, who has cause to give thanks to God? Everybody, right? Right? Why would the, why would the saints in Jerusalem have cause to give thanks to God in this story? Well, because he's provided for their needs, Right? He's providing for their needs. They have every reason to give thanks to God because one of these days Paul is going to show up in Jerusalem with a sack full of money, right, for the church at Jerusalem. He's going to say, look, look at the generosity of your Gentile brothers and sisters. Look at the generosity of these folks in Achaia and Macedonia. Look at how they have sacrificed and they give to you so that you can buy bread to be sustained, so that you can have water and have a life and be sustained in your life. And they're going to say, oh, thank you. They're going to no doubt say thank you to those who gave, but more than that, they're going to say, oh God, thank you. Isn't that the way you respond? 
when God, through the generosity of someone else, provides for your needs, don't you say thank you to him? The church at Jerusalem have, has every reason to be thankful to God. The saints at Corinth have every reason to be thankful to God, right? Because he's doing a great work in their midst. Not only has he provided for them what they can give, he is developing in them a desire to give, right? And so they are thankful to God for this good work of his provision and his generosity. And Paul and his companions also have every reason to be thankful, right? Because it's one thing to stand up and talk to a group about this, and it's another thing for them to actually do it. <laughs> and a lot of times, the guy who delivers the message doesn't see any fruit of that, but Paul gets to see it. In fact, we're going to look at that at the end of the text today. We're going to go to Romans, where Paul talks about the generosity and the joyous giving that actually happened from Corinth. And I want to tell you, that's, that's where I'm at. This is a cool thing. Sometimes when you preach the gospel, there aren't a lot of metrics to see how that's going. But when you talk about to people about giving, and a report comes out at the end of the week how much they gave, it's measurable. And it's exciting. I feel like something good is happening. And we rejoice over it. And so I, I have much to be thankful for. Paul had much to be thankful for. The saints at Corinth had much to be thankful for. And the saints in Jerusalem had much to be thankful for. And so we give thanks. That's part of the great purpose of all of this, is that thanksgiving would overflow uh, to God. Look at verse 13. This is a big... Big idea here in verse 13 that's going to be a little bit frustrating for some of you. In verse 13, Paul says, Because of the proof given by this ministry, they will glorify God for your obedience to your confession of the gospel of Christ and for the liberality of your contribution to them and to all. I want us to think for a little while about what Paul means when he talks about the proof. Because of the proof given by this ministry... It's an interesting concept that he's talking about here. And it's a concept that sometimes we fight against. And I think when we talk about the gospel and the outworkings of the gospel in our lives, we have a tendency as a group, we have a tendency to make one of two mistakes. And if you look at the history of the church, you will see these two mistakes happen pretty often. The pendulum will swing one way for a little while, and then the pendulum will swing the other way for a little while. And I want you to hear that there is great danger on both ends of this spectrum. There is a great and possibly damning mistake on both ends of this spectrum. When we talk about the gospel and the outworkings of the gospel, there is a tendency for some people to say, listen, when I read the scripture, it looks like it's all about works. It's all about what you do. And you've got to do this and do that and keep this rule and follow this and live this way and live that way in an effort to earn God's favor, in an effort to do what he says that you're supposed to do so that he will look down at you and say, you are worthy because of what you're doing and I will extend my peace and my forgiveness to you because of what you have done. There's a tendency for some of us to think that way, to read the scripture and say, all right, I got to do, I got to do, I got to do, and what I do, God will repay. What I do for him, he will repay with forgiveness and favor and joy. Okay, that's, that's a big mistake. Some of you are looking at me like, why is he talking about this? That's a big mistake, right? 
And people make that mistake. And we call it legalism or we call it whatever we want, but that's a mistake and that is not the gospel. On the other end of the spectrum, sometimes in light of that, there are other people that will say, listen, when I read the scriptures, I see that Jesus died for our sins and that is absolutely all that matters. And if I just believe in him and confess him with my mouth, that is all that matters. And so guess what? It doesn't matter how I live. It doesn't matter what I do. It doesn't matter if I follow what he says to do, if I don't or anything. It doesn't matter at all how I live. It doesn't matter anything about the law. Nobody cares about that because I've got the grace of God and that's absolutely all that matters. That also is a dangerous place to be. And what Paul is saying here is the balance, the biblical balance of the two where he says, prove, prove your faith that this act of giving along with a million others that are listed in scripture are actually proofs of your faith. Proofs of your trust. Look at what he says here in this verse. He says, because of the proof given by this ministry, they will glorify God for your obedience to your confession of the gospel of Christ and for the liberality of your contribution. What I want you to see here is that true faith, true faith, if it is real, is always shown. True faith, if it is real, if it is saving, is always demonstrated. You tracking with me on this? That there's a danger on the one hand to say, no, it's all about my works, and that doesn't include faith at all. And there's a danger on the other end of the spectrum to say, I've got faith, but no proof. And I want you to see that both sides of that equation are wrong. True faith, true saving faith, if it is real, is always displayed through works. One commentator said it this way, this may help. He says, true faith, as not only James, but Paul shows clearly always demonstrates itself in works. And these works are, of course, undertaken in obedience to the will of God. So if your faith is real, therefore it will show. Another guy says it this way. The Corinthians' embrace of the gospel would be proved not only by their confessions of belief, but by their submission to the grace of giving and their generous contributions to the poor in Jerusalem. Their faith would be proved not just by their confession, but by their action. And our faith works that way as well. A lot of folks, a lot of folks get this wrong. A lot of folks in the church thinks it's, think it's all about their works. A lot of folks in church thinks all it takes is a confession with their lips. When in reality, true faith works its way out. Another commentator talk, said this about this verse. He said, this is not, not a legalistic observance. Not a call to legalistic observance, but to grace. And we know that because he says grace about 40 times in these two chapters. It's what he wants to see is grace. Not a legalistic observance, but grace. He says it's not a call to save ourselves, but to demonstrate that our faith is not in vain. Paul says, you got faith. You got faith, church at Corinth. You've said it. You've said it. You've confessed it. Now prove it. And I want to be able to say that to all of us today. I hear this text saying that to me. You say you've got faith, prove it. You say you've got faith, show it. And I think some of us recoil against even that idea as if it's unbiblical. And here's what I want you to hear. You as an individual will drift toward one of these extremes or the other. As an individual, you will drift toward legalism and you're, you're a rules guy. 
And you want to follow the rules and you'll think, okay, if I just keep the rules, God will be happy with me and it's all going to be good and my salvation depends on that. And some of you are not rules guys. <laughs> some of you are the opposite of that. And you say, hey, listen, I said I believe in Jesus. I walked the aisle and I got baptized. I even got dunked in that water. And so I'll just live however I want. How I live doesn't matter at all. What I do doesn't matter at all. You as an individual will tend toward one of those dangers. And guess what? Satan knows that. Satan knows which way you lean, and he will push you that direction. Either in the direction of lawlessness, in the name of freedom, lawlessness, or in the direction of legalism, in the name of obedience. He will push you in one of those directions or the other. So what do you do? What do you do to make sure you're not falling into one of those lies? You stay in the Word. That's what you do. You stay in the Word, and you meditate you meditate on the gospel and the sacrifice of Jesus. And you read about the implications of that sacrifice for us who would follow him. He tells the disciples, follow me. Follow me. Take up your cross. Follow me. Lay down your life. Follow me. He doesn't just say, confess me. He doesn't just say, believe me. We'll see more of this in, in a little while. I want you to be careful, though. Be careful identify which way you lean. And then look at the end of this verse. Verse 13. He says, Because of the proof given by this ministry, they will glorify God for your obedience to your confession of the gospel of Christ and for the liberality of your contribution to them and to all. They will glorify God because He has met their needs. They will glorify God because He's bringing together saints from Gentile background and Jewish background. They will glorify God because he's crossing these barriers and showing the power of the gospel. They will glorify God because of this unity that they have. They will glorify God because the church is working the way it's supposed to. And that's the end of everything, isn't it? That's the goal of everything we do in the church. It's not just to care for people, is it? It's not just to take care of each other, is it? No, ultimately everything we do is for the glory of God. We serve for the glory of God. We give for the glory of God. We worship for the glory of God. We evangelize for the glory of God. We do missions for the glory of God. And Paul says it's happening. It's happening through this gift, through your generosity, through your proof of faith, and through your obedience to your confession. They will glorify God. God will be glorified. What a great promise that is, that he will be glorified. Look at verse 14. This is cool. I love verse 14 because I think I saw it. Kate, you're going you're gonna to love this. Verse 14 says, while they also, that is the saints in Jerusalem, the poor, persecuted saints in Jerusalem, while they also, by prayer on your behalf, yearn for you because of the surpassing grace of God in you. In other words, these poor folks see the grace of God in you. How do they see the grace of God in you? How, how do the saints in Jerusalem see the grace of God in the saints at Corinth? They got a magnifying glass? Did the saints at Corinth write them a letter and say, oh, I have faith in Jesus Christ? No, they showed it, didn't they? They proved it. How do they see it? In that sack full of money that Paul's going to carry to Jerusalem after a while, right? It's one of the ways that they are going to show that. And they saw the grace of God. So how did they respond? How could they possibly respond, right? They're poor. They don't have anything. They can't send them a gift back. What can they do, though? They can pray. They can pray. They can have fellowship. They're together. Look what he says. They long for each other. He says, while they also, by prayer on your behalf, poor saints in Jerusalem, they're praying for you. Also, they're yearning for you. 
They're yearning for you. They want to have fellowship with you, and they do already have fellowship with you. And then thirdly, they learn. They learn and they follow because they are seeing the surpassing grace of God in you. So what can these poor saints do in response to the gift they've been given? They pray, they fellowship, and they follow. And we saw that in Haiti, right? What you need to understand is about, about the work that we have done in Haiti is that the church in Haiti is strong. The pastors in Haiti are strong. And the church is growing and the church is very healthy. But it's so poor. Unbelievably poor. And so when we go to work there, what we take is not necessarily teaching and truth and and wisdom and all these things. What we take in a lot of ways is resources and encouragement and fellowship. And we show up with money. We show up with help. We show up with strong arms to swing buckets of concrete all day. Right? We show up with these things. And what do they want to do in return? I will tell you what they do in return. They pray for us. There's a pastor there that we have worked with several times. His name is Pastor Samson. He's this giant of a man with a smile that is just enormous. And one of the things he wants to do with us every time we're there, when we get there and when we leave, is he wants to pray for us. What else could he do? And what could be better? What could be better? It is a special moment when he comes and he prays with us in a language that we do not understand, but with a spirit that we definitely resonate with, a smile that is universal, and he prays for us, and we have this connection. I think when I get to heaven and see Pastor Samson, it's going to be a cool thing. There's a fellowship there, even though we're not close to each other. And I think there's also an element, even in Haiti, of this, they watch, and they learn, and they follow. Because the last two times we've been, we saw Pastor Samson at the beginning of the week, as he was loading up his church to go on a mission trip into the Dominican Republic. Pretty exciting. Pretty exciting that this guy, who is the recipient of so much grace, recipient of so much help, is leading his church to go somewhere else where they can help. It's cool, right? And that's exactly what Paul is talking about here. That when this work takes place, there will be this reaction that they will see the grace of God and there will be prayers. How how do the poor saints pay you back? They pray for you and there's nothing better than that. What do they do in response? They have fellowship and there's this yearning and there's this connection. And there's also this learning and this fellowship and this fellowship that happens. And it's a beautiful picture. Even though they can't pay it back, it's not the point. It's not what the church at Corinth is looking for. There's a connection there that is so important. And then look at verse 15. This is the best. The best. Paul, after talking about all of this about giving, we've talked about giving for six weeks here at First Baptist Church. And this is the last sentence of the whole thing. Get this. This is the last sentence of the whole thing. Thanks be to God for His undescribable gift. What is that undescribable gift that he's talking about? Is it all the money that the church at Corinth has? Is it all the sacrifice that the church in Macedonia has made? Is it all the need that the church in Jerusalem has? What is the indescribable gift? It's got to be Jesus, right? It's got to be Jesus. When Paul comes to the end of it, it is the indescribable gift of God in Jesus Christ that leaves him at a loss for words. He doesn't know how to describe it, so he makes up a word that loosely translated means indescribable. It's a word that doesn't have a meaning. It's a word that acknowledges we can't make a word that that describes the gift of God in Christ. Don't you love that? Put a word to it. Put a word to describe the gift of God in Christ. 
There's not one. There's not one that does it justice. So make one up that doesn't describe the gift, but describes how indescribable the gift is. That's praise. That's worship. It is not, oh, Jesus is like a tree. Or Jesus is like a flower. Or the gospel is like this. The gospel isn't like anything else in the world. The gospel is indescribable and glorious. And the gospel of Jesus Christ impacts all of our life. That's what he's getting at here. The whole business of giving, the whole business of service, the whole business of missions, the whole business of church begins and ends with the gospel of Jesus Christ. So what do we need to do? What do we need to do in light of this doxology, in light of this closing praise? I think one of the best things we can do is simply meditate on the gospel for a while. Not not get out your wallet and start counting money. It's not the first response we want to make today. The first response we want to make today is spend some time meditating on the gospel. Thinking about how God created the world. And it was good, right? It says that in Genesis 1. He's making things and they're good. It was good. It was good. It was good. He makes the man and it's real good. And there's this picture of God and man in perfect harmony walking together in conversation and in work. And it's good. It's beautiful. God gives that man a rule. Ah, singular rule. Don't eat from that tree. The rest of the garden's yours. Enjoy it. Love it. Don't eat from that tree. Snake comes along. Did God really say, don't eat from that tree? Oh, God knows that if you do eat from that tree, you'll become like him. Deceived, Eve takes the fruit and eats, gives it to Adam, who was right there doing nothing. He eats, and what happens? It all falls apart. It all falls apart. Immediately, they know they're naked. They've always been naked. But immediately, they know they're naked, and they are ashamed. Immediately, they run, and they hide from God. That is, that is powerful. They run and hide from God. You know what's even more powerful? Is that God comes looking for them. There's, re- there's redemption. Even right at the beginning, there's redemption. Even in the midst of this problem, even in the midst of this brokenness, God comes after them. And there are consequences for that sin. Consequences that you and I inherit. Consequences that you and I... Do, look around. Look around. Consequences of this sin all around us. You know why my hair falls out? Sin. You know why you get sick? Sin. You know why the crops don't grow like they should? Sin. You know why relationships get broken and messed up? Sin. We're all sinners. We do it because it's who we are. And because of sin... There's judgment from God against our sin. We see that all throughout the scriptures. There's this brokenness, this separation from God. There's this wrath that we deserve for our sins. We are separated from Him, and it is bad, bad news. Then one day, at the perfect, exact, right time, God sent His Son to be born of a woman, born of flesh. This little bitty baby is God in the flesh, and that little baby grew up taught us, healed us, fed us, 
showed us what it looks like, and he lived the first life without sin. First one ever. Never sinned. Was tempted in every way, just as we are, and yet did not sin. So what did we do to him? We killed him. That's what he came for. That's what he came for. He came to die for us. And he did. And we're going to talk about that a lot in the next few weeks. About how Jesus took our sin upon himself. How all of the mess that I have committed was placed on him who knew no sin. They took him. They arrested him. His friend betrayed him. They beat him. They mocked him. They plucked his beard. They put a crown of thorns on his head. Smashed it into his skull with a rod. Put a purple robe on his broken back. Ripped it off just as it began to scab. Made him march up a hill carrying his cross. Nailed him to that cross. Like a criminal. He hung naked before the whole world. Jesus, Son of God, humiliated for you, for me. And he died. And he didn't didn't just die from asphyxiation. He didn't just die from the beating. He didn't just die because of the physical trouble he had. He died because the wrath of God was poured out on him on your behalf. He died because it pleased the Father to crush him instead of you. He died for you as your substitute. Died in your place. And just to make sure he was dead, they took a spear and they jabbed it into his side. And out from his side came water and blood. He was dead. Really dead. They took him down from that cross and they laid him in a borrowed tomb just before the sun went down so they could observe the Sabbath, a high Sabbath, the Passover. And when they could, some ladies came back to prepare his body and to take care of him. And guess what? He wasn't there. He wasn't where they had put him. Guess what? He wasn't even dead anymore. He was alive. This is the best news ever, is it not? Jesus died for our sins. That's good. Jesus raised victorious over our sins. That's better. He beat death at its own game. Took our sin, took it away, took death's sting, suffered it all, and beat it for us. And he offers us this life, this hope, forgiveness of sins, reconciliation to God. Somebody's going to be punished for your sins. Jesus was willing to step in and say, I'll take it for him. I'll take it for him. So that he doesn't have to. Man, what does Paul say? Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. And he tells us, you can have this gift. You can have it. It can be yours. How do you receive it? By grace, through faith. Repent and believe. That's the way the Bible says it. So what do we need to do today? Meditate on that for a while. Think about, think about that. Think about, think about Jesus on that cross. All the suffering that he endured. You know that should be you, right? It should be me. Not him. It shouldn't be him. It should be us. 
but it was him for us. What an indescribable gift. So we meditate on the gospel. And we let the gospel impact everything that we do. Application number two is we prove our faith. Prove it. You say you believe in Jesus. You say you follow after Jesus. You say the cross impacts your life. Prove it. Look what James says. James chapter 2. You don't have to turn there unless you want to. Verse 14, James says this. What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but he has no works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so faith, listen, even so faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. But someone may well say, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one? You do well. The demons also believe and shudder. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? I think that's a word we need to hear. You have faith? Show it. Prove it. Those works flow from it and are evidence of it. Be careful that you don't try to make them the most important thing. Be careful that you don't try to earn God's favor by your works. But if you've got faith, you'll have works. If you have the kind of faith that saves. Meditate on the gospel. Prove your faith. And remember, finally, that the end game of all of it is the glory of God. And everything we do. When we meditate on the gospel, glory to God. When we sing, glory to God. When we give, glory to God. When we serve, glory to God. When we live in unity, glory to God. That's what we live for. That's our entire purpose. Go to Romans chapter 15. We'll close with this. Who, who was the guy on the radio that said the rest of the story? Paul Harvey. This is the rest of the story. Because we don't learn in 2 Corinthians whether or not the Corinthians actually did it. Paul's just saying, I have confidence that you will do it. But in Romans chapter 15, Paul tells us that they did it. Look at, verse, look at this. Start in verse 22. 15.22 says, For this reason I have often been prevented from coming to you, but now with no further place for me in these regions, and since I have had for many years the longing to come to you whenever I go to Spain, for I hope to see you in passing and to be helped on my way there by you when I have first enjoyed your company for a while. Listen to this. But now... I'm going to Jerusalem, serving the saints. Why is he going to Jerusalem, serving the saints? To take the collection. For Macedonia and Achaia, where's Corinth located? Achaia. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. Yes, they were pleased to do so, and they are indebted to them. This is, this is amazing what he's going to say. First, what I want you to see, though, is they did it. And how did they do it? Grudgingly? With a, with a frown? All right, Paul, we'll give you money. We told you we'd give you money. We're going to give you the money. Leave us alone. Get out of here. No, they were pleased to do it. And look what he says why they were pleased to do it. He says, 
they are indebted to them. Macedonians in Achaia, they are indebted to Jerusalem for if the Gentiles have shared in their spiritual things, that is Christ who came from the Jews, they are indebted to minister to them in material things. He says part of what's going on here is that they recognize, these Gentile Christians recognize that they owe something to the Jewish Christians because of the gospel of Jesus Christ that they are now connected to them. Not that the Jewish Christians have been connected to the Gentile Christians, but that the Gentile Christians have now been connected to the Jewish Christians. He goes on in another place in this book to talk about how the wild olive has been grafted into the natural olive, the picture of the Gentiles being grafted into the Jews to receive the promises, the greatest promise of which is Christ himself. That's a lot, and you're going to have to look at that after lunch. That's a big deal right there. But Paul says they did it. They did it. They were glad to do it. I can't wait. Can't wait to January 1st, 2014. Can't wait to January 1st, 2014, so I can say the church in Harrisburg did it. And they were pleased to do it. They said they were going to. They talked about it, and they did it. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. But more than that, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Jesus Christ on the cross for you. Let's stand together and pray. God, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for providing for us. Thank you for the generosity of your people. Thank you for their obedience. Thank you for their sacrifice. Thank you for the provision for those who are in need. Thank you for the work of the church in taking the gospel to the nations. Thank you for all of that. And 10,000 times more, thank you for the cross. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for grace. Thank you for mercy. Thank you for that substitute who would step in and take what we deserve. Thank you for killing him. Thank you for killing him so that I might live. Thank you for killing him so that we might live forever and ever. Thank you for killing him so that we could be reconciled to you and forgiven of our sins. Thank you for killing him. And thank you for raising him from the dead. Thank you for that victory that is ours because of him. God, help us who know that victory and know that forgiveness and know that hope and have received that gift by your grace through faith in Christ. Help us to live in response to it. Help us to prove by our lives our faith in Christ. Help us to show the world that we belong to you. Help us to live for you. And God, we pray for those who are in here today who don't know you, haven't received the gift, they're hopeless and dead in their trespasses and sins. God, come to them. Show them their need. Show them your provision. Show them the cross. And let them run to you. Give them faith. Give them repentance. Give them a right response that submits everything they are to everything you are and depends completely on you for this life and life to come. 
God, we ask that you raise the dead in this room today. And that you'll be glorified in the process. In Christ's name we pray.